Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Elena McGrath, your host for today. Here with me is Carmen Solis, Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Dr. Solis is the author of Fields of Revolution, Agrarian Reform, and Rural State Formation in Bolivia, 1935 to 1964, which is out this year from the University of Pittsburgh Press. Welcome, Carmen. Elena, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So how did you come to this project? Um, well, it's a bit of a long story. I, I guess that's uh, true for everyone. Um, but so just to give you a little bit of a background of who I am, I did my PhD at NYU. But before that, um, I grew up in Bolivia. I made my um, I started my BA in Bolivia in La Paz City. I studied political science. I did my master's in Andean studies in Bolivia and then another master in Salamanca in Spain in Latin American studies. So at some point between master's and, and, and the PhD, I started working with a group of researchers, of Bolivian researchers. It was a project sponsored by the um, Coordinadora de la Mujer, which would be like the Institute of Women Affairs or something like that in Bolivia. And they wanted to uh, research uh, what were uh, what how Bolivian society to, to 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 make it kind of broadly was responding to cases of child abuse and uh, sexual harassment in particularly in the countryside. So it was a kind of very broad project. And as I said, it was a, 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 a several researchers working on this. Some people was looking at how, for example, the schools in the countryside were responding to these things, to, to cases like this. Order group was looking at the community level, how families and, and, and community was responding to cases or of, uh, of child abuse. And in my group, I was working with historian Rosana Barragan at that time, and uh, we were looking at how the judicial system was kind of responding to these cases. So we want to look how the state, the police, the attorneys, if if those cases even make it to 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 their offices. And well, it's a, it was a, a long research, but I just want to kind of focus on one event that kind of uh, marked me. And um, I went to Pucarani, which is a town, a village, almost like 50 minutes from La Paz City, I decided to look the office of the attorney. And when I went there, what I found is kind of an empty office. It was Monday and they say, yeah, yeah, just wait for him. He's coming. He's coming. So it was Tuesday on a Wednesday, finally, I saw like a very old Volkswagen arriving to Pucarana, Pucarani town. And um, what I see is this guy who uh, opens his trunk and he takes out this folding chair and then a folding table and he installed the thing. He ta- takes out a Bolivian flag, open a file and says, how can I do, what can I do for you? <laughs> right? So that kind of made me think 
uh, and particularly for someone who's coming from, from political science in which we talk about the state, the government, right? The contrast between that image of that very weak uh, uh, image of what is the Bolivian state, particularly in the countryside versus probably our in the academic imagination of what was the state. So when I decided for the PhD to work the 50s, I was particularly interested in that question. How was it possible even to launch this very, the, one of the most distributive agrarian reforms in the continent if you have this really weak infrastructure? Or even even for in, in terms of people who are a lot more critical of how was the, even the MNRs capable of subordinating all of these peasants and co-opting if they, they have very limited, limited weapons to do that. So I think that was kind of the initial question, the way I approached my, my, my topic. That's such a that's such a great story, and I love the image of the kind of the folding chair state, right? And the, and so um, so that brings me to my next question, which is there's there's a lot of debate about the MNR and about the revolution of 1952, and your book really wades into that debate. So what what have scholars said about the agrarian reform and whether the MNR was a a radical organization or a, a force of repression or what, what's that debate look like? Um, well, yeah, I, I think you're right in, in this sense of it's a, it's really hard to summarize in two or three minutes, of course, um, a, a literature of, of almost 60 years at this point. Um, but I, just to summarize, I will say that uh, there are at least two views about the agrarian reform. The first one, of course, is, is the view of the MNR, sponsored by the MNR, the, 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 the uh, President Pazistensoro, who signed the decree, etc., etc., who basically argue it is the party that did the agrarian reform. And the peasants were basically beneficiaries, and they didn't even fight in the revolution, right? They recognized the role of the, the, the union, of the um, mine workers in, in the mines and, 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 and workers in, in the Papa city, et cetera, et cetera. But they really thought of peasants as really passive actors. So that was, I will say, that initial view sponsored by the MNR was later supported for, for other academics or other historians in, in Bolivia, but also uh, abroad. I would say that already in the 60s, but mainly in the 70s and 80s, we have a very different view. A lot of people are a lot more critical of the role of the MNR. But primarily, I want to kind of uh, highlight the, the the work and the and the and the the, the view of what uh, in Bolivia is called the Taller de Historia Oral Andina, which is the uh, Andean oral history workshop, which is a gather a group of most of them Aymara activists and scholars who have been rethinking and studying Bolivia from and revisiting some of, some of, some of the things that we know about Bolivian history. And uh, what probably the, one of the most important contributions for me is that they say, hey, the peasants did not start awakening in the 50s. They had a very long history of a struggle that started already with Zarate Vilca in the late 19th century and continue with the fight of the caciques apoderados in the 20s, etc., etc. Then they had a really critical view of the MNR 
and especially the I want to highlight the the, uh, the work of Silvia Rivera, uh, the sociologist, really important, uh, and her work oppressed by not but not defeated. And basically, she argues that the MNR was probably almost a counter-revolutionary force that co-opted the peasants, that subordinated the peasants to their political will. And in fact, the agrarian reform ended up uh, implementing a kind of reform based on medium-sized properties, on small-sized properties that ended up breaking indigenous communal ties, right? So there was a very, very critical view of of the, the revolution and the agrarian reform. And how I position my work, I will say that I, in fact, agree that we uh, we gave too much protagonism to the MNR. But I also think that both views, in the end, the the let's say the MNR view and the uh, Toa view, in the end, both uh, kind of reinforce the idea that the MNR was the agent and that the peasants were. And in some cases, betray or or whatever, but they, like we don't see the agency of the peasantry. And what I show in my work is that we cannot understand the final outcome of the, the agrarian reform and the depth of the agrarian reform if we don't understand how this peasant and indigenous uh, forces were operating on the ground. So basically, that that's kind of a huge summary of of what the, the work is. Absolutely. So the the and and one of the things that your book I think does really well is it doesn't just say the peasants were agents. It shows how it shows yeah. how the state had to negotiate with those communities. Well, so since we're since we're talking about agrarian reform, let's talk a little bit about the importance of land in Bolivian history. And your first chapter is really all about how how central land was to politics, to wealth, to um, the nation in up into the revolution and, and continuing to this day. So um, can you talk a little bit about um, what the regions were that made up your study and what land ownership looked like, what labor looked like prior to 1952? Sure. Um, so I basically uh, ended up studying three regions, three provinces, and they, they are very, very different in, in terms of their geography. I pick up... Um, Omasuyos, which is in the highlands, in the Bolivian highlands, Yungas, which is this tropical, subtropical area also in La Paz, and then one region, Germán Cordán, in the valleys of Cochabamba. And uh, the three of them, as I said, geographically are really different, um, but they have in common that the three of them had a, the, the, the hacienda system was really strong in these three places. The the other crucial difference in, in this place is that, in these three places, is that the, the history of the hacienda was a little bit different. In the case of Cochabamba, the, the formation of the hacienda already started in the colonial period. As, as you know, the, in the valleys, the valleys of Cochabamba are so close to Potosí that since very early on, these regions were providing wheat and corn to the mines of Potosí. So landlords were, Spanish landlords were really interested in taking this place. Then in the case of, of um, Yungas has been the traditional area for the production of coca, uh, also the uh, production that was going to the mines. So again, landlords were really interested also in uh, 
uh, grabbing lands in, in this area. So you, you have the formation of, of the hacienda also in, in particularly claim, uh, talking about the 18th century. And then in the La Paz and the, on the highlands are, are a little bit of the contrast because indigenous communities manage to survive and to control lands for much of the colonial period in this area, but really they suffer expropriation and land grabbing in as the product of liberalism, right? That primarily happened in the 19th century. So the kind of the, the, the history is a bit different in these cases. In all of, of these cases, what you find is um, a, a peasants, what in Bolivia we call colonos, which of course uh, they, they had the chance or, or, or the, the opportunity to have a plot of land within the hacienda for, to, to, uh, for the survival of their families. And in exchange, they there were no wages. They have to work for the landlord, which is, of course, the system that you also find in Peru, you find in, in, in Chile at the time. Probably one of the things that we want to highlight is uh, the amount of services that these colonos ended up doing for a landlord. That's the other thing that I think sometimes we forget. It was not only that they were harvesting or, or, um, or cropping uh, things for, for, for the landowner, but everything else was be, uh, um, in the shoulders or, or rely in the shoulders of, 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 of these workers. And for, for example, they had to carry all the production from the countryside to the cities and the animals were provided by the colonos. The rope to tie the harvest was provided by the colonos. There were cases, for example, that I found of haciendas that they bought uh, tractors kind of to uh, improve the mechanization of the hacienda. And colonos complained that the gas was paid by the colonos. Right? So it's, it's unbelievable the amount of, of exploitation. They have to work, of course, as... as, as um, peons in the ha- household of the of the landlord and the wives have to also uh, develop th- uh, this this chores they have to wave they produce chicha etc 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 so i think when we think almost when when sometimes i read i, I start reading about this it was like well harvesting doesn't sound that but that bad is like no well that's one percent of the other 99 percent of things that they had to develop in that environment the other thing that I would like to highlight, and, and that was another kind of key argument for me in the first chapter, was that what I see already since the late, uh, late 1930s was that the landlords were really interested, um, not, the, not only the landlords, but the right in Bolivia was really interested in developing what they call a program of agrarian reform. But it was an agrarian, a conservative program of agrarian reform, and that started already in the in the forties, particularly with the president of uh, Peñaranda, and he created the agricultural bank. Uh, he granted credits to uh, landlords. They create they created the Bolivian Rural Society almost at that time, also because they want to kind of have um, uh, landlords participating in in the board of the agricultural bank, and I. What I saw, there were like a number of credits uh, given to landlords in La Paz and Cochabamba. So they were from 
actively thinking of an agrarian reform and we in Bolivia we could have perfectly have a different path right a path in which uh, like in the 40s they were thinking that the landlords were going to be the agents of change and progress in Bolivia right and I think we kind of forgot that and nowadays particularly in Bolivia we kind of understand that agrarian reform is a synonym of land distribution but that was not always the case. I, I found that really fascinating that um, Bolivia, like like many other places, had this drive towards um, agrarian industrialization or modernization and all of these things. Um, but it was seen, it was yeah land reform as as undertaken by landlords, right? And that um, and so I think your second chapter really kind of builds on this idea that land reform wasn't invented as an idea by the MNR in 1952, 1953, right? So there were there were there were contests over what land reform meant and what problem it was seeking to solve before that. And so one, one example is this landlord-led Peñaranda modernization in the 40s. But can you talk a little bit about some of the debates that were happening also on the left about um, what land reform could do? What would it fix? What problem would it solve? Yes. And uh, thank you for that question. I think what they the goal of that chapter, chapter two, was primarily to show that land reform in the end was basically a container and a container of a lot of ideas, right? And uh, what for me was interesting to see in all those pamphlets published in the 40s, like the titles were super revolutionary. And then when I look at the content, I was like, this is not going very far, at least looking probably from the eyes of, of, of someone who already went through or already saw the revolution happening. And what I find, for example, in the, the text of the MNR, they were thinking primarily, and I think the, the best example of that is uh, the signature of the street decrease by Villarreal in 1945, in which they're thinking in reform primarily in terms of improving the the life of on the working conditions for colons they are not thinking about expropriation or changing property relations in the countryside so they were like well maybe they can uh, we can put some rules that make exploitation slightly less oppressive but that was it so they were thinking more in labor rather than in property um, but the, also I find really interesting how the left party was really critical of the MNR and the indigenous Congress led by Villaruel. And they said, well, this, this is, this is not enough. And I was kind of waiting for that text that was going to reveal what was the plan. And they were talking about, we need, um, uh, modernization and we need machines and uh and seats and etc etc and i was like okay so they are not talking about they were very shy about even kind of referring to um expropriation but also i think they were shy and as i said careful because they were facing the powerful bolivian rural society and in fact, what I see in that chapter is the resp- the answer. But uh, the left party basically suggests, why don't we create an institute of agrarian reform that would kind of study the, the, the case in Bolivia, what's happening in Bolivia. And the uh, Eduardo del Granado, who was the representative of uh, the Cochabamba Rural Society, answers and he says, these communists are trying to 
destroy the country, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for me, on the one hand, I wanted to show kind of the ambiguity of, of the suggestions about and how careful and how much they were trying to even imagine. And, and, and I, I think there were a couple of texts that I, I, I collected from people who was writing already in the 40s, but also in the early 50s, right after the revolution, in which they were saying like, well, maybe the colonists can pay back the landlords. Right. So things very, they were very careful. But as I said, we cannot understand that if we don't understand the weight also of the Bolivian rural society in the 40s. Yeah. And the sort of unthinkability of actual transformation of property relations is becomes very visible. It's like before, just a few years, even before there is this land reform that takes on a form that is that is, you know, taking land away and giving it to other people. You have you have just a bunch of people saying, okay, well, maybe, maybe we, there shouldn't be free labor. <laughs> yeah. We'll see what we can do. Right. Yeah, and so, yeah. so your next chapter is, is about the early years of the MNR revolution. So in, in 1952, you have this party taking power and in retrospect, uh, the land reform of 1953 was one of the big pillars of their revolution. But what you argue and you show is that in the early days, they wanted to reform rural labor relations. They wanted to have wages. They wanted to make working conditions better, but not redistribution. But you show how in their efforts to sort of assert their own political power and take, you know, insert the state into the countryside, they had to change that plan. And so can you talk a little bit about that chapter? Yeah. And I think you, you phrase it really beautifully, Elena. Like I think you, you phrase the chapter even better than I was ever, ever able to do it. I love it. Then <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, I think you, you, you're totally right. On the one hand, I, I, I quote several um, statements from, for example, the uh, head of the, the, the Department of Agriculture in 1952, Herman Tapia. I'm, I'm sorry, in 1953 already, he, and he argues, we're not going to touch anyone's property, right? Already in the context of the revolution, they are saying things like that. And in some cases, they, they, they left on the MNR when they were talking about, we need to give land to the Indian, and they added, in the lowlands, right? In those areas of colonization. So they were, again, really the afraid. empty of, lands we can give. empty lands, exactly, exactly. So they had a lot of, trouble just thinking how on earth we're going to deal with these landlords. And at the same time, what I see is that uh, I will say that the MNR, primarily because of its own survival, uh, and I'm thinking in Pasistensoro, and literally when I'm saying his own survival, I'm talking really in literal terms. He was really afraid to end up like Villarreal Hank in the, in the plaza. So he really understood because of the experience of Villarreal and they were so close to that government that if he, that just seizing power was not enough, that they really needed to undermine the networks of power also in the countryside. So one of the things that they started doing was to attack really directly the, the, this, the Bolivian rural society, the Yunga society, the Cochabamba society. They were um, Most of them were 
most of their members were really early on in jail because they were accused of being phalangistas and, and conservative uh, and uh, undermining the role of the MNR. So they, they, uh, many of them migrated to Peru, for example, as, as exiles. And at the same time, what I see is that at the local level, and here I needed a little bit of, of, of uh, parenthesis, uh, what do you find prior to the revolution were this, what they call the rural councils. This is before the revolution. And it was conformed, this is informal uh, associations conformed primarily by landowners or kind of the most important merchants or priests uh, or, you know, the kind of the important quote-unquote people in, in that little town. And what they do every year was to send a um, three names to the governor of the Department of La Paz, what in La Paz is known as the Prefecto. And they will basically say, okay, here are the kind of the names that we suggest for you to be the next uh, corregidor, in, in, intendente, the next uh, subprefect of our province. Thank you so much. So this was this uh, informal mechanism in which they will basically control, the, of course, they put their own people, they control local power. And what I see and I find fascinating was that the MNR uh, eliminated those rural councils and decided that it was going to be the peasant unions that were going to take that role. And uh, I, I think that we kind of, um, we haven't paid enough attention to that process, but what I argue in the book is that it was a very profound form of democratization of the state that really allowed peasant unions to control that, uh, the, the, that their regions. And you and, and I think I, I read this in in other works and previous works in which, well, it's not a big thing. At the end, you know, they don't didn't have enough money, which is true. But that mechanism systematically. Uh, undermine and sabotage the, the old power of, of these local elites. So I think it was a really important process. And already when those relations of power were changed, it was really hard for the MNR not to have an agrarian reform that was not distributing property. So I think both processes went together. Yeah, that I, I really liked the way you talked about the kind of democratization of the actual mechanisms of power that the state relied upon to to, to enact things. And, and so one of the key parts of your argument is these peasant unions, um, which some people have suggested were sort of created by the MNR, but you, you're showing these, these are unions that peasants have been trying to unionize at least since the 1930s and organizing in other ways long before that. Um, and so what you show is that there's an explosion of unions in this period. And what you suggest is that 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 partly builds on this this expertise of organization that was clearly already there on the ground. Absolutely. And I think just to add to what you said, uh, I think one of the things that we forgot in, in our revision of the history is that um, Bush and Toro in the 30s, late 30s, opened the possibility for workers to organize unions. And then you don't see that many unions in the countries, a peasant unions. We, you see a lot of mine uh, workers unions but or urban unions, but not that many peasant unions. But I think what we forgot is that in, 94, in, in, in Peñaranda, in, on, in, the 19, in the early 40s, with a new decree, uh, banned 
peasant unions from uh, uh, getting organized. So what I think what was happening was that there was a huge demand to unionize. And what the MNR did with the, this the, the decree in 1952 was unblock something that there was, uh, that was already part of, of uh, a demand for, uh, from, from, from grassroots demand. I really like the way when, when you were talking about um, Estensoros, like fear, visceral fear of being hung from a lamppost, right? I, I, I think that the, the 1952 revolution has so much more to do with the 40s than we think about. And, and what happened in the 40s was a kind of suppression of rural and urban descent that was already going on. There's this there's there's this pent up demand of people people are getting more active but they're but they were being prevented um so so i want to talk about um this concept that you come that you talk about which is this everyday forms of revolution as you you're building off of scott and um kind of everyday forms of state formation and so in in your fourth chapter i'm i'm bringing this question in here because i think your fourth chapter is really interesting because you you allow for these kind of technical debates at the national level and even the international level. You show how Guatemalan experts and Mexican experts were coming in to say, this is land reform. This is what we can do. Um, but that on the ground, it's the peasant unions who are saying, uh, we want this. And you find that the government is often just ratifying the de facto agreements, regardless of what the law says. So so how does everyday form of forms of revolution work in the Bolivian land reform. Yeah, thank you. I think that probably the idea in part also was to um, almost rethink this idea that the revolution is that thing with capital R and think in this revolutionary processes in in this more granular way that I, I wanted to see from the very beginning of the, new, the, the beginnings of my research. And what I find is, is, and one of the things that I'm trying to show, not only in that chapter, but also in the, the, the other chapters, was that, you know, just the decision of the union to not grant or not give the, the harvest of that year to the landlord, the decision of uh, eating the very expensive cattle of the, of the landlord in a barbecue, right? Or the decision of um, organizing a union, the role of the head of the rural society, or not the rural society, the, the rural council in Omasuyos to almost uh, distribute lands, although he did not have the attribute to do that, or to even like uh, forget uh, to... Uh, call the landlord uh, to attend the audiencia or those what it seems really minimum or activities that are not revolutionary activities where the, this capital are but they were what I think is fundamental for sabotaging and undermining systematically the all power of the elites and all those all those everyday, Acts of resistance and that, or acts of revolution, is what basically I'm trying to show. In your introduction, you sort of bring up these these granular forms of rebellion, like like eating the eating the cattle so that they they're gone, right? Um, and turning turning that into a party. That one of the things you you suggest is that this is this is something that that maybe peasants do all the time, but is not enough. 
right, is not necessarily enough. So what what was what happened in the Bolivian Revolution? It seems like is that a state that was willing to that a state that was trying to change things from above met with this profound um, organ this this profound level of chaos on some level from below, and decided that in some cases it needed to ratify those decisions. Yeah, well, I think there were a, a, a number of things happening. I think uh, if you look at the 50s also, the MNR is dealing with a lot of enemies at the same time. So I, I was also in, intrigued and like uh, amazed by how on earth you deal with so many things. On the one hand, they have the very combatant, strong um, unions in the mines, which are really potent. They are basically in the government. You have the U.S., and which is a massive headache, to say the least, for the MNR. You need to negotiate the price of the team. But also, as if would, that wouldn't be enough, but just touching some properties. They were touching the church, the church, the Catholic church. And I have a lot of fun just collecting this, uh, the exchange of letters between the Archbishop and, and Walter Guevara Arce, in which the Archbishop is crazy. And Walter Guevara Arce says, like, well, we're following the principles of, um, um, what, what's the name of the priest of the 16th century, the Bartolome? <laughs> that's, 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 yeah. So we're, we, we were very Catholic. That's what we're doing. Uh, we, we are the original priests, right? Yeah, yeah. And so in that context, and the other thing that I found was that uh, internal reports from the MNR said, like, we barely control 10% of the unions, right? So they're, they're, the capacity of controlling the unions was really, really limited. So in that context, I think it worked much better for the MNR to let these unions uh, continue with the process of of expropriation of, of, of consolidating the land, they never did something that, for example, I found in other cases in Latin America and Mexico, or, or even even worse in the, in the case of Cuba, in which they have state farms and they're regulating who's going to produce. The, the Bolivian state on them and I didn't dare to get theirs. Like, whatever you, you think is fine. Basically, they were signing the titles, right? But it was the unions who led that process. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that is that is what is so interesting is that um yeah, in Mexico you have these big collective projects and the Bolivian state is like maybe <laughs> maybe we could do that in the future. And so that actually gets us to rethink the chronology of the revolution because you we're we're talking about the MNR right now which was found itself really besieged on all sides unable to control the peasant union. So they start signing papers and they say, this is going to be better for us. But what you show is that the, once the MNR fell and you have a series of military dictatorships, they also felt like they needed to negotiate with the peasants, right? The, the Barrientos, Banzer, you have the agrarian reform is not rolled back when yeah. the revolutionary government falls to military regimes. And so you actually talk about the process of peasant consolidation of the countryside t- continuing into the 80s. Um, in, and so this this kind of changes the way that revolution and reaction is thought about in the Bolivian case. Absolutely, absolutely. I think especially what is in terms of what happened in, in terms of land reform, in agrarian reform, I think it's really different 
from the political timing when we think uh, nationalization of the mines and what is happening in that realm or what is happening with the oil, which at this moment was already reprivatized by the MNR. So I think uh, one of the things that, uh, that I was trying to argue is that we need to think in the timing of the, 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 the revolution or in terms of the grand reform or what is happening in the countryside in, a, in, in kind of rethinking uh, it's not parallel of what is happening in other areas. And what I show is that I found really interesting that in 1964, when Barrientos come, comes to power, which is this military regime that overthrows 12 years of, of, of the, the MNR being in power, uh, immediately I found the letters of landlords uh, sending in, uh, um, letters to Barrientos and saying, like, this has been horrible and chaotic, and we really need a kind of a regime like this to revise uh, the, the, the expropriation, not only of um, uncultivated properties, but, the, you know, this government, the 12 years in, under the MNR, they distribute cultivated properties, medium-sized properties, properties in which there was investment, and that's no, the agrarian reform was not about that, which is true. I find a lot of cases in which there were medium-sized properties, there were properties in which you find investment and, the, and they ended up in, in expropriating those properties. But what for me is really interesting, and I think that is what distinguished the Bolivian case versus, for example, the case of Chile, the case of Peru, the case of Guatemala, the military or, or the, the kind of conservative regimes that took power in the cases of Peru, uh, Chile, and Guatemala immediately undid the conquest of the the or the the, the, agrarian, the distribution and the, the gainings that peasants won in the revolutionary context. And what I say is that the, the Barrientos and late, later Banzer, which is even more conservative, did not dare to touch the, the gainings of the grand reform. There were reasons for that. There are a couple of important reasons. One of them was that they, they were looking at the lowlands at this point. They, 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 they thought it was probably politically too expensive for them to even dare to, to touch the, the lands in the, in the valleys and in the highlands. It is also true that they also were more worried about the mine workers more than the, the peasants, and they needed almost at the, at the ally. Uh, and the peasants, they, they, they signed the, what was called in Bolivia the Military Peasant Pact. However, I think um, scholars, previous scholars, rightly so, have pointed out uh, how this pact was beneficial for the military. But I think we also need to think how this pact was beneficial uh, for the peasants, right? Because it was this moment, it was in the 60s and 70s and 80s, when I see that some uh, landowners who were able to keep uh, a piece of land after the agrarian reform, they expropriate, they lost most of their land, but they were able to keep a medium-sized property. In the 60s, in the 70s, they, knowing that they didn't have the support of the government, they end up or just leaving the property, selling the property. And it's in this month, this decades, in the 70s and 80s, that uh, Aymara and Quechua peasants are going to kind of become the, the control these areas. And that is the case up to today which is probably one of the huge differences between Bolivia and other countries in Latin America. 
it's a it's a profound difference when you think about the 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 rural agrarian societies of the 40s and then today it's you don't you don't have this landlord power it's just it's not there um and that's yeah i think that's a really really important way to think about it um and so let's let's now talk about um how how that um the land reform and and we've been talking well we've been talking about peasants and we've been talking mostly about colonos right but now let's talk a little bit about the differences between the situation of the comuneros and the colonos and and i really like the way that you bring in this idea of how giving land back to the original owners is quite a different proposition to giving land back to those who work it or giving yeah, land to those who yeah. work it. Yeah, I think uh, it, that's, um, I'm folk, um, I work on that on, on chapter five, I think, is it mm-hmm. chapter five? And um, what I basically wanted to show, and, and this, is, this is not new, of course, it is the work of a lot of um, researchers that have been working in the years of uh, before the, the revolution in in early early 1910s and 1920s, the work of Silvia Rivera, the work of Laura Dotkowitz, and they showed the uh, relevance of these movements of uh, if people who lost land to landlords, who in Bolivia are called the comunarios, and they call themselves ex-comunarios, and the their leaders which in Bolivia were called at that in the 1920s, the caciques apoderados. And they were forcefully trying to uh, demand, uh, sometimes through rebellions or revolts, and sometimes through legal movements, they were claiming for the restitution of the lands, particularly the ones they lost in the 19th century with uh, liberalism. But also these researchers, what they were arguing is that this movement, the Cacique Apoderado movement, kind of waned down after the Chaco War. That, uh, you know, they, 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 all of a sudden kind of, uh, uh, we changed gears, we're a lot more interested in the 40s in colonial rights and kind of the, 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 the Comunario movement, the Cacique Apoderado movement uh, died. And so it was very surprising for me to find in the archives to find letters of caciques apoderados writing to President Pases de Soro in 1952 and 1953 and arguing this, that we are with you, we are the revolution. But that thing of land for those who work it, we really disagree with that point. We actually want land for their original owners, for right? We want... We don't want expropriation. We want restitution of our lands. And what I find amazing, and I don't think, uh, uh, I think my work is, a contrib- is contributing with that, uh, we didn't pay attention to the decree that passes then sort of signed in 1954, uh, recognizing the right of uh, indigenous communities to restitution. And then when I moved to the province of Omasuyos and I started looking at the agrarian files, I find a lot of demands for land restitution. And I see how successful were the comunario demands. And also one of the things that I I show in that uh, chapter, but I think we need a lot more research, a lot more research in other provinces of the highlands to to see if if it was kind of a, a, is it only Omasuyos or what was happening in other highland provinces? 
Um, but there was also that, that the, 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 the promise of restitution brought tensions between the colonos and the comunarios, because of course, uh, the landlords brought other people, uh, landless peasants to work uh, with them as colonos, and they were not interested in moving away uh, and giving back the land to the comunarios. So that, that created also a lot of tensions. And I think that, that that's something that um, kind of gets flattened when we think about agrarian reform, but it's been it's something that comes up in Mexico too. It's something that comes up in Guatemala as well. When you're talking about the land reform, there are indigenous communities who say, these are our titles, these are our colonial titles. And then you have the people who are like, we, we are working the land and we are owed the land. And the, the case of Bolivia is so interesting because you have that decree from 1954 that does offer um, land restitution. And and so the conflict, I, I there there is an inherent conflict there in in redistributing land in terms of who gets it. Um, but there there is this sort of basis for originarios to get their land in certain ways. Um, and it's it's interesting. I wonder if that does that conflict play out in sort of destabilizing local local power relationships during the 50s? Yes, and I also think that, and probably this is also an, a way in which I'm trying to kind of revisit some of the previous historiography. I think the way in which we saw the relation between um, the project of the state or the project of the MNR versus uh, the project from the bottom, uh, you know, the kind of Toa and Silvia Rivera and other scholars have been looking at you have kind of the unionization project was coming from above, the the um, the, uh, the the kind of the, the claim of land for those who work it, it was coming from above, and then you have uh, demands from below that were kind of more oriented that there were the indigenous uh, people or, or comunarios demanding uh, for communal property, and what I think what was happening is that both political projects are coming from below. The colonos are really interested in defending the view of the MNR, of land for those who work it. And they use the union, they find in the union a very useful weapon, not only to fight the landlords, but also to fight against the, the, the comunarios, right? And uh, so I, 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 it's a lot more complicated. And what I think, and well, um, I'm thinking in the work of anthropologist Amy Kennemore, but also um, I, 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 other people that have been looking at conflicts between what today we call comunidad versus sindicato, uh, union versus community. And I think these conflicts were latent conflicts that precisely started in, in the 50s that anthropologists are looking at those conflicts today. So those those tensions just by... Uh, the borders of or the of the of the control that the the ex hacienda versus the the, the land that was going to be controlled by the community continue to be to be there. I don't think they are solved. I think my final question for you is just what now? I mean, it's a it's a great book. It's such a it's 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 a book that covers so much ground in terms of our understanding of the revolution and the countryside. Um, what are you working on now? That's a great question. <laughs> That's an existential question. Yes, right? I <laughs> well, uh, one of the things that I really would like to explore, um, and 
I think we did a lot. I'm thinking in in, in classes too. When you start, when you teach Latin American uh, Latin American history in the 20th century, you look at how what were the effects of the Cuban Revolution. But we don't know much about what were the effects of the Bolivian Revolution. In particular, uh, I want to focus on the effects of the agrarian reform, which came uh, six years prior to the Cuban Revolution. What how what was the reaction of other countries? And I'm really intrigued primarily by the reaction of the Peruvian government, who they were really concerned about the spread of the revolution on their on, on, on their country. So they didn't have a, a, another better idea than to close the frontiers. So that that they were so worried about that. So I really want to explore. Um, I don't have the, the, all the material, but kind of working in that direction. And then I'm also interested in the decline of the MNR, let's say, and I want to study the hyperinflation. I'm, I'm kind of beginning the project, but I want to move to the 80s. I'm not sure where I'm going yet, but that's that's I'm, I have threats of or when I, where I want to go. Well, that, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait. Um, well, thank you so much for your time, Carmen. And um, I look forward to talking to you in the future when when some of those other projects are out. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.